0: I'm going to invite you to start making your way back to your seats. Start making your way back to your seats. As you head back to your seats, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. We are continuing on in a series that we started just last week, a series through the book of Judges that's entitled, Broken Leaders and God's Unbroken Promise. Broken Leaders and God's Unbroken Promise. And we're going to be looking at the entirety of chapter 2, well, beginning in verse 6 through chapter 3, verse 6, but... What I want to do this morning is I just want to read into your hearing Joshua chapter 2 beginning in verse 6 and I'm going to read through verse 10 and I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. Judges chapter 2 beginning in verse 6 and here at the beginning I'm going to read through verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, Previously when Joshua had sent the people away. The Israelites had gone to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people worshipped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua. They had seen all the Lord's great works He had done for Israel. And Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him In the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. And the whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. And after them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works that he had done for Israel. And this morning, I want us to consider the idea, the compromise of the people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it is. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. I ask for physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. The compromise of the people. As many of you know, uh, some of you know well because she likes to share it. My wife is from the Midwest, specifically from Minnesota. Minnesota is the land of 10,000 lakes. Now, I'll be honest, I thought that that was just a catchy name for the state until I went and visited with her for the first time. And It is literally the land of 10,000 lakes. It's something to behold. I mean, you'll be in the middle of downtown and turn a corner, and there is a giant lake in the middle of downtown, not like a pond, like some of us call ponds, like, like, like a legitimate lake in the middle of the city or in the middle of a neighborhood. And it's been fun over the years to travel up there in the summers and enjoy the beauty of those lakes. It's been even more fun since having children and getting to watch them enjoy the water as much as I do. I remember on one of our trips up there, we were at the lake where my father-in-law lived at the time. And we were out on his boat. And this particular lake has this really cool spot. Basically, there's a point at the lake where the sand extends out probably 200, 250 yards And the water is only about waist deep in that whole area. So a lot of people will swim out there from the shore. People will pull their boats up. That's what we did, kind of anchor right there so that you can hang out in this area, be in the water and not have to tread water the whole time because the deepest point of that lake is also over 150 feet deep. It's a little different than the lakes we have here, but there's this beautiful sandbar. So we're out there. One of the first days we were out there and my oldest daughter, Emery, got the idea that she wanted to jump off the boat for the first time. Now, if you know anything about my oldest child, you know that she's not necessarily what we would call, let me say it like this, (laughs) she's a very cautious child. She's a very cautious child, and I'm okay with that because she's not the one I have to worry about, amen? It's the other one. But she's not a big risk taker. I mean, this is the kid that will watch hours of YouTube videos on tornadoes to come up with a plan for what we should do in case a tornado comes. But she wanted to jump off the boat. And so I'm hyped, right? I'm like, hey, you've got this. You can do it. I'm right here. I'm in the water. She had her little floaty on. And she's standing at the edge of the boat. I'm standing in the water about waist deep. And I look at her and I notice that her little knees are just shaking. I mean, literally shaking. And so I I don't want to stress her out. I'm trying to be a good dad. Nobody pushed her in. That's not where the story's going, okay? I want to be a good dad. So I say, hey, it's okay. You don't have to do this. You can just get in the water with me, I'll hold you, and we'll swim around. And she said, no, Dad, I want to jump, I'm just really scared. And so I say to her, Emery, I'm right here, I'll catch you, and I won't let anything happen to you. And so she edges to the end of the boat, her little toes kind of hanging off, knees still shaking, It took about a solid six minutes, but she jumped. And she was so proud of herself. I was so proud of her. She conquered her fear. And so, you know, I'm hyped all day. Hey, Emery, you remember when you jumped off the boat? You got it. like I'm, I'm hyping her up all day. So the next day, we go out again. She puts her floaty on. She goes to the edge of the boat. I'm in the water. I'm ready to catch her. I'm expecting her to just jump. I mean, she already did it once. She knows she can do it. But then I noticed it. Her knees started shaking again. And she's got this look on her face like she's terrified. And so I say to her, Emery, you can do this. And she said, Dad, I'm scared. And so I say, what are you scared of? To which she replies, well, what if you don't catch me? Now, <clears throat> as a rational adult, this seemed an odd concern to me for two reasons. is First, because I knew I could catch her. But second, because I caught her yesterday. I had just caught her when she jumped in the water. And so I said to her, Emery, do you remember that you jumped yesterday, and I caught you. I'll do it again. And she said, didn't take six minutes, oh yeah, I forgot, and she jumped off the boat. Now, I wasn't fully prepared for that one. That's beyond beyond the story, But, but I did catch her. She just went a little deeper. Now, I didn't know at the moment as this incident was taking place, but as I was reflecting on that this week, the Spirit started teaching me. In a very real sense, that's us. We become paralyzed. We become disobedient. We refuse to trust God. It stifles our worship. We're often afraid to move because of one simple thing, a failure to remember. But when we remember, who God is, when we remember what God has done, it instills within us a motivation to run after Him, to trust Him, and to worship Him with all that we are. But this isn't a new reality. It's the very situation the people of God are faced with in Judges chapter 2. And unfortunately, the people of God failed to remember. And we see the devastation that this failure brings. And so this morning... I want to take a look at the second introduction to the book of Judges. If you missed last week, there are two introductions to the book of Judges. First one begins at chapter 1, verse 1, and runs through chapter 2, verse 5. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, through chapter 3, verse 6, is a second introduction. So the author gives two introductions, and what we'll see at the end is it's actually going to match two conclusions that the author of Judges gives. And so we're going to look at the second introduction. The first introduction focused on the people of Israel, and specifically their failure as a a socio-political unit or as a nation or as a military. They failed to do as a nation what God called them to do in driving out the inhabitants of the land that he had given to them. But in the second introduction, the author shifts from kind of Israel as this nation state to the individual people that make up the nation. And so if, if the first introduction is their military failure, then we could say that the second introduction is their moral failure. And this morning, there are four truths that I want you to see as we work through this text this morning. Here's, here's the first truth. Remembrance is the fuel for our worship and obedience. Remembrance is the fuel for our worship and obedience. Look, look with me again at, at verses 6 and 7. It says, Previously, when Joshua had sent the people away, The Israelites had gone to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people worshipped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua. They had seen all the Lord's great works he had done for Israel. So we have to remember where we are in the story. Again, we're in the second introduction focusing on, on, on the people as individuals, And and so the author goes back to when Joshua was still alive. Now, if you remember back to last week, again, a shift of leadership has taken place in Israel. Because before, leadership was primarily vested in a single individual. First it was Moses, then God told Moses to appoint Joshua. But after Joshua, God does not tell him a person to appoint. But instead, leadership is distributed among the people among the elders, among the leaders, among the judges, among the families. And Joshua makes his declaration in Joshua 24, verse 15. But if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord, choose for yourselves today, which will you worship? The gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living? As for me and my family, we will worship The Lord. That is Joshua placing the burden on the people to be the leaders in the nation of Israel, specifically the elders, the leaders, and the judges. But this is the people's response in Joshua 24 verse 16. The people replied, we will certainly not abandon the Lord to worship other gods. And so we go back to Judges 2 verses 6 and 7, and we learn that that's precisely what happened with the generation that lived when Joshua lived. It says in verse 7, the people worship the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua. Now there are two things I want you to see here as we consider this first point of, of remembrance fueling our obedience and our worship. Here's the first. Faithful leadership will always push people to remember who God is and what God has done. Faithful leadership will always push people to remember who God is and what God has done. And throughout Joshua's life, he was always pushing the people to remember God. We see it in Joshua chapter 4 after God stopped the Jordan River from flowing so the Ark of the Covenant and the people could, cra- could, could pass. Joshua sends 12 men back to the river each to grab a stone. 12 stones for the 12 tribes. And he says bring them in front of the people. Carry the stones over your head. And Joshua says this in Joshua 4 verses 6 and 7. And in the future when your children ask you what do these stones mean to you you should tell them the water of the Jordan was cut off in front of the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. And when it crossed the Jordan, the Jordan's water was cut off. Therefore, these stones will always be a memorial for the Israelites. Joshua wanted future generations to remember. In Joshua 8, following the pattern of Moses, Joshua built an, offer, an altar and he offered sacrifices, and then it says in Joshua 8: 34 and 35 that afterward Joshua read aloud all the words of the law, the blessings as well as the curses, according to all that is written in the book of the law. Listen, he says, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read before the entire assembly of Israel, including the women, the dependents, and the resident aliens who lived among. Joshua was leading the people to remember at the end of his life. In Joshua 24, we read how one of the last things Joshua did was remind the people of everything that God had done. He went all the way back to Abraham and walked the people through the story of God's faithfulness to them. And as he was departing this world, he wanted them to remember faithful leaders will always push you to remember. I'll be honest, there's a reason I stand up here and say the same thing to you in different ways from different texts with different stories. It's because I know you don't need my creativity, you don't need my personality, you don't need me at all because I have nothing on my own to offer you but I know the one who does. And I know what he has done. So I want you to remember. But here's the second thing we have to consider about this idea of remembrance fueling our obedience and our worship. And I, and I want you to see this. God is worth remembering. And that remembrance will fuel our worship. God is worth Remembering. I mean, it's right there in the text that he's worth remembering and that his remembrance will fuel our worship. Look again at verse 7. The people worshiped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetime of the elders who outlived Joshua. Why? Well, because of what he says next. They had seen all the Lord's great works that he had done for Israel. And, oh, he had done great things. I mean, there were so many things that the people in Israel could have looked back on to cultivate their worship. Maybe it was that after 430 years of being in slavery and captivity in Egypt, God sent Moses to deliver the people from that captivity. Or maybe it was while they were on their way out. They remember how God led them as a cloud by day and fire by night. Or maybe it was when they had a sea in front of them and an army chasing them and their backs were against the wall. God split the sea in two so they could walk across on dry land. And don't miss it. The land was dry. God not only split the water on the right and the left, he sucked up every drop out of the dirt and the mud so that the ground was dry because he's good like that. Or maybe they remembered that time when, when they were in the wilderness and they were hungry and God opened up the heavens and manna fell down to feed them. Or maybe it was the time where they came to this city called Jericho and the walls were built real high. And they had no idea how they were going to get in to the land that God had promised them. And so God says, take six days and each day walk around the city one time. But then on the seventh day, I want you to do something. I want you to walk around seven times. But on the seventh time, I want you to yell and shout and scream and blow your horns and worship and watch what I do. Because God's plan made no sense to the world, but God doesn't need it to make sense to the world. And you know the story, the walls fell down. But don't miss this. I heard a pastor say it like this one time I liked it. He said, the children's song lied to you. You know the song, don't you? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came what? Tumbling down. Yeah, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the walls fell flat. Why? Because even the stones have to lay prostrate before their maker when he moves. And what I'm trying to tell you is that the people of God had so much to look back on. But can I tell you something? So do you. Just like the people of God back then, we too can look back and see the great things that he has done. In fact, we have something greater to look back on. It's not a parted sea. It's not a conquered city. It's a hill called Calvary. Where on it Jesus secured our salvation. And the measure of our worship is re- directly related to the measure of our remembrance. You know it, remembrance does something. There's something about remembering that our God slays giants that lets us stand a little taller when we face the obstacles in front of us. There's something about remembering that God calms the seas and lets us pass, that lets us press on a little further when the storms of life come. There's something about remembering that our God has conquered death, sin, and hell that provides us with hope in the midst of a broken world. There's something about remembering that ought to fuel our worship. And I wonder this morning, If perhaps the reason some of us can walk into this place and routinely go through the motions, can sit in this place completely unmoved and without worship, it isn't because God hasn't done something, but we've forgotten. And it's a dangerous thing for God's people to forget who He is and what He's done. This leads to the second truth that I want you to see this morning. Forgetfulness is the beginning of disobedience. Forgetfulness is the beginning of disobedience. Look, look back with me at verses 8 through 15. It says, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance. in Timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash, the whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors, and after them another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshipped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed other gods from surrounding peoples and bowed down to them. They angered the Lord. They had abandoned him and worshipped Baal and ashtoreth The Lord's anger burned against Israel and He handed them over to the marauders who raided them. So He sold them to the enemies around them and they could no longer resist their enemies. Whenever the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and He brought disaster on them just as He had promised and sworn to them. So they suffered greatly. Now pay close attention to what the author writes there in verse 10. The whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors and after them, Another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. Not only is this a failure of the generation who did not know God, but it is a failure of the generation who came before them. You see, part of the responsibility of the people was to pass on the faith to those who would come after them. In the Shema, in in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, God instructs the people, and this is part of what he says. He says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Listen, he says, repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your city gates. It's almost as if God was concerned with remembrance. And so somehow those elders, those leaders, those judges who proclaimed to Joshua that as for them and their houses, they would serve the Lord. They may have served the Lord, but their houses didn't. And somehow they failed to pass on the faith. And as a result, a generation arose who did not know God. And they did not know what he had done. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I first read that, I asked the question, how is it that in one generation a people can completely forget? And then I was reminded that sometimes it only takes me a day to forget who my God is and what he's done. Now, when you look at, when it says that the generation did not know God or what he had done, I don't believe it necessarily implies that they had no knowledge of the events I believe it's more likely they did not have a faith in the God who did those things. They were not walking in the covenant relationship that God had provided for them. And this serves as a needed reminder that your faith is your faith. No one can have faith for you. No one can remember for you. Your mama's faith can't save you. Your daddy's faith can't save you. Your brother's faith can't save you. Your sister, your grandma, your auntie, your uncle, your children. It can't save you. I appreciate what Arthur Kundal says when he writes that each generation must must enter into its own living religious experience. It cannot continue in the spiritual strength of its past heroes. Now, Two things worth noting about this. First, it should be our joy to pass on the faith to the generation that is to come. Now at first, I'm going to be honest with you, I, I was going to like give a word of application to parents. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that that's just not a parent's job. Every one of us who claims to be a Christian has the privilege and the responsibility to declare the marvelous works of our great God to the generations that are to come. I've said it before, I'll say it again, we are losing a generation. We are losing a generation because they are more in awe of TikTok than they are the God of the universe. And maybe you've tucked your stones in the closet. Maybe you've put them under your bed, but What the people coming after us need to see is a stone in front of them so that they see it and they say, what is that? And we get to say, let me tell you what God has done. And you might be sitting here right now thinking, but I don't have any stones. Well, let me tell you, the Bible says that if you are in Christ, you are a living stone. You, Christian, are a testimony to the mighty power of God because please don't forget that your salvation is nothing short of a miracle. You weren't smart enough. You weren't wise enough. You didn't know the right theology. Your soul was dead and God made it alive. You had a heart of stone and he gave you a heart of flesh. You didn't do it. It is a miracle that you are here by the grace of God, giving him the praise and the honor and the glory that he is due. You are a living stone. Maybe, just maybe, the best stone we have to offer is our very lives lived in recognition and remembrance of the fact that all that we are and all that we will be is because there is a God in heaven who sits high and looks low. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Their forgetfulness was the beginning of their disobedience. Look at what the author writes there again, beginning in verse 11. He says, The Israelites did what was evil, In the Lord's sight, they worshiped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them and they angered the Lord. Failure to worship God is disobedience. And disobedience is a sin. You see, sin isn't just doing a bad thing. Sin is also a failure to do the right thing. It wasn't just sin because they worshipped other gods. Even if they wouldn't have worshipped the other gods, it would have still been sin because they weren't worshipping the living God. And the question that I have is, how do you define your obedience to the Lord? Do you base it solely on not doing the things that God has said not to do? Or do you base it also off of doing the things that God says to do? You can avoid all the major moral pitfalls of this world. You could be a faithful husband. You can love your children, love your wife. You can be a faithful wife, love your husband, love your children, a faithful employee, a faithful friend. You can do all of these things and still have your soul go right to hell. Because obedience demands not only not doing the bad things, but also doing the right thing. And there is nothing righter than worshiping the Lord our God. And so for Israel, this sin began a pattern that would be be repeated for nearly two centuries in the life of Israel. The time of the judges, what we're going to look at in the weeks to come, it covers nearly two centuries. And this pattern, right, of sinning and then feeling the consequences and crying out to God and God delivering them through the judges and then the judge dies and they go right back to their old ways. And this pattern teaches us something. It's the third truth I want you to see this morning. Faithful remembrance requires more than just information. Faithful remembrance requires more than information. Notice what it says there at the beginning, or beginning in verse 16. It says, The Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their marauders, but they did not listen to their judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods bowing down to them. They quickly turned from the way of their ancestors who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They did not do as their ancestors did. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the people or the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. Whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their ancestors, following other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them. They did not turn from their evil practices or their obstinate ways. They got caught in this cycle of sin. They'd be conquered by the enemy that was in front of them. It would be brutal. They'd be oppressed. They would cry out to God God would be moved in pity and would raise up a judge as we'll see in the weeks to come who would deliver them and they would live in the land peacefully until the judge died but then they fell right back into their sin and each time the fall was greater than the last but I want you to notice something interesting here when they cried out notice who they cried out to they did not cry out to the false gods they worshipped. They cried out to the true God. Why? Because they remembered something. Remember I said, I don't, I don't think it's that they, they had never heard the name of God. They didn't know, at least know the stories. They had the information. They weren't walking in the covenant relationship. But, but when it hit the fan, who'd they call out to? They called out to the true God. Because they remembered who it was who gave them the land in the first place. So they cry out to God, wanting him to deliver them from the oppressors. Why? So that they could dwell in the land in peace. And God, moved with pity, would do it. But then they would fall right back into sin. This is what I'm getting at. They remembered the information about God, but not their covenant with God. They knew that God could give them the freedom in the land because he'd given them the land in the first place, but they missed the whole point behind the land. They didn't actually remember why God was doing what he was doing in the first place. I mean, consider what Jeremiah says hundred or so years later when he reminds Israel of this very same covenant he says in Jeremiah 11 verses one through five, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Listen to the words of this covenant and tell them to the men of Judah and the residents of Jerusalem. Tell them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Let a curse be on the man who does not obey the words of this covenant which I commanded your ancestors when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the iron furnace. I declared, obey me and do everything that I command you and you will be my people and I will be your God in order to establish the oath I swore to your ancestors to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is today and I answered amen Lord so 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 check this out the end goal for God right the end goal was not for Israel to have a piece of property I mean, I know the promised land is significant. It matters. It matters in the history of Israel. It matters to our story and how we understand the blessings of God. But the end goal of God was not to give them a piece of property. The end goal was that God would have a people and they would have him as their God. And all that God had done, the deliverance that he had provided, the freedom from Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, stopping the Jordan River, delivering Jericho into the hands of Israel, it was not primarily about a piece of property. It was to cultivate a people. The blessings of God poured out on Israel was for Israel to grow in their belief and trust that they were God's people and then to act like it. And they failed. Please hear me if all you remember about God is that there were times when he helped the check clear the bank or he gave healing when you were sick, if all you remember is that when you had that physical need, God met that need, or you needed wisdom and God gave it, if that's all you remember, you've missed the point. Now please hear me. It's not bad to remember those things. We need to remember those things. We need to praise God for the blessings, even the physical blessings that he has poured out on our life. But you've got to understand that God is not primarily concerned with giving you earthly things. God is primarily concerned with you, Christian, being made more and more into the image of your Savior. It's not about simply having your name on the divine adoption papers. It's about living like you're actually a part of the family. You know what I'm talking about. All y'all got that one cousin or that one aunt or that one uncle, you don't got to say who it is, who you know their name and you know they're in the family, but they always forget grandma's birthday. They never show up for Mother's Day. They flake on family Christmas and Thanksgiving. You know on paper they're in the family, but they don't act like they're in the family. Could it be that so many churches in America are filled with people who think their name's on the paper, but they don't act like they're in the family? And just like for the people of Israel, if we are not careful, we can miss the point. We can miss the point of God. How easy it is to see God as some emergency service in the sky to deliver us from every physical struggle, from every trial, from every hardship, and miss the fact that God is our God because he delivered our soul from death by taking those of us who were not a people and making us His people. And genuine remembrance requires more than just a head knowledge of information about God. It requires a personal, covenantal relationship with God, which we only can have through Jesus Christ. If all we have is information without the relationship, we will fail to remember what God has truly done and who God truly is and I'm going to tell you it won't be enough to motivate your worship or your obedience and we too can find ourselves in the same situation as Israel you know I say it all the time often the Old Testament specifically Israel is a physical picture of our spiritual reality To again quote quote Kundal, he says, Terminology changes with the passing of the years. But the profound insights into human nature which the Old Testament gives us cannot be denied. The voices of conscience can become dulled by successive acts of sin. And repentance can become more and more superficial. Until ensnared in the character formed by a multitude of thoughts and actions... A miracle is needed to produce a genuine repentance and a seeking of the Lord with the whole heart. But can I tell you this morning, it's a miracle that God is willing to do. This leads to the final truth I want you to see this morning. When we fail to remember, God doesn't forget. When we fail to remember, God doesn't forget. Look at Judges 3, verses 1 through 6. It says, These are the nations the Lord left in order to test all those in Israel who had experienced none of the wars in Canaan. This was to teach the future generations of the Israelites how to fight in battle, especially those who had not fought before. These nations included the five rulers of the Philistines and all of the Canaanites, The Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in the Lebanese mountains from Mount Baal, Hermon, as far as the entrance to Hamath. The Lord left them to test Israel, to determine if they would keep the Lord's commands he had given their ancestors through Moses. But they settled among the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Pezerites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The Israelites took their daughters and wives for themselves, gave their own daughters to their sons, and worshipped their gods. Now you might be thinking, well, how in the world do you get this idea that when we don't remember, God doesn't forget? Well, there's something interesting about these verses. We know that God, God refused to do what Israel was supposed to do, right? Right? They wanted God to fight for them where God said he would fight with them and they did not drive out the people from the land that God had given them. And so God refuses to do it for them and as a result, they remained in the land. Those that were supposed to have been been driven out remained in the land but they remained for a purpose to test Israel. But there's something else in there. Did you catch it in verse 2? It says, this was to teach the future generations of the Israelites how to fight in battle, especially those who had not fought before. I love this because even though Israel failed to uphold the covenant, even though they failed to be the people of God and live as if that was true, they failed to drive out the people in the land as God commanded, even though they worshiped other gods and they forgot the covenant. God did not forget his promise to them and he was fighting for them. Well, how? Because God knew as a result of their rebellion, and we know this reading through the Old Testament, that that Israel would spend the majority of their existence as exiles under foreign ruler. And he was using this moment to teach them how to survive physically, to teach them about war. But more than that, He was protecting them until they could receive what they truly needed, a new heart. God never forgot his promise. And nearly 2,000 years ago, the promise was fulfilled. It was fulfilled when the Son of God stepped into the world that he created to redeem it. A world that was made up of people just like you and me who have rebelled against God. We've all sinned and fall short of His glory. And though God would have been right to just destroy, in His patience and forbearance, He chooses to save. And as I prayed earlier the story that we have to remember that cannot become dull on our ears, Jesus Christ showed up, the Son of God, wrapped in flesh, and He walked on this earth faithfully obeying everything that God had commanded, faithfully fulfilling the covenant that Israel was supposed to fulfill. And He was the only one who's ever walked on this earth that did not deserve death, and yet He willingly died on a cross in the place of sinners like you and me. He died. Because it was the only way that we could be made right with God. And he paid for our sins. He paid for the failure of Israel. He paid for every time they worshipped Baal and Ashereth. He paid for every, every violation. But he did it for you and for me as well. As he hung on that cross and died, God poured out the full measure of his wrath and anger and hatred of sin. But we know the story does not stop there because he was crucified and buried but three days later he got up and as scripture tells us he was crucified for our transgressions and raised for our justification the sacrifice was accepted and we can come through faith and repentance trusting in what christ has done and be adopted into the family of god we can be the people of god and it is all because our god did not Forget his promise. That's a God worth worshiping. That's a God worth praising. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. God, we thank you. That when we fail to remember, you don't. We praise you that you are for us and not against us, God. And Lord, this morning I pray that you would cultivate within us lives of uh, of remembrance, Lord. Where we would be in awe of all that you have done. That we would be living stones that declare your majesty, your might, and your worth to a world that so desperately needs to know. Give us grace to run after you with all that we have. And it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen.